Learning to recognize logical fallacies is a critically important part of being a good critical thinker, of having good intellectual rigor. Um, we are bombarded with uh, logical fallacies all day long, and learning to recognize them is really important in effective business decisions. Uh, so it affects us in terms of business decisions we make. It affects us in terms of life decisions we make. And if you are a coach or consultant, it's really helpful to understand logical fallacies as well, because very often our uh, coaches or our clients will have a tendency to resist feedback. They will um, um, resist feedback. They will argue with feedback. They will try to rationalize what they do. And the better we are equipped to gently, politely, and compassionately point out the flaws in their thinking, the more effective we can be. Okay, So uh, for a lot of reasons, these are important. And I would add that as Enneagram professionals, it's important to understand and be aware of these as well, because we are continuously learning and um, kind of integrating new information. And it is important to think well. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that a little bit further, Maria Jose. I'm glad you brought it up that the Enneagram sort of resides in this uh, new agey, you know, um, quasi spiritual environment uh, where there's quite frankly a lot of pseudoscience and nonsense, uh, a lot of really bad philosophy, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, self help that's based on emotion rather than logic. And there can be very often denigration of logic and people can make choices based on that denigration of logic that are harmful for them. Okay? So they start to believe nonsense, quite frankly, is what it comes down to. So being equipped to spot uh, logical fallacies helps us from believing nonsense and it helps us from perpetuating nonsense to our clients. So there's two kinds of logical fallacies, basically, right? They're, they fall into two categories. And the first one is what is called a formal logical fallacy. And a formal logical fallacy means that it contains an error in either one of the premises or in the conclusion. And a formal logical fallacy is invalid on its face, meaning it's just, it's just wrong, okay? And so the conclusion rendered by a uh, uh, an argument that includes a formal logical fallacy is wrong. Uh, so what's an example of that? Okay, so um, a classic uh, syllogism used in the study of logic goes like this. All men are mortal. Socrates was a man. Therefore, Socrates was mortal. Okay? Basically, you have two premises, both of which are true. All men are mortal. We know that every man dies. Okay. We also know that Socrates was indeed a man. Okay. So because we know that all men die and because Socrates was a man, we know that Socrates would die. Okay. And did die. Okay. Hemlock will do that to you. All right. So that is a classic um, logical construction. All right. No errors in it. Now, if you were to change that to something like in our first example all dogs are mortal which is true socrates is mortal which is also true 
but conclude, therefore, Socrates was a dog, well, that is a formal logical fallacy because, number one, the uh, conclusion is flawed. Obviously, Socrates is not a dog, but the first premise has no bearing on the second premise, okay? And because, meaning that it doesn't in any way affect the second premise. Um, whether all dogs are mortal or not has no relevance to Socrates, okay? So this is an example of a formal logical fallacy that is, uh, you know, the conclusion is flawed and because it does not, the, the, the conclusion does not follow the premises, even though the premises are correct. The second kind of logical fallacy is when a flawed premise undermines the argument. Okay, All men are immortal is presence number one. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is immortal. Well, the problem is, is that the first premise here is flawed. Okay, We know that not all men are immortal. Okay? We don't know if... Uh, for sure, no men are immortal, right? Not all men have died yet. But we do know that not all men are mortal because many of them have died. And just because Socrates is a man does not mean he is immortal. Right? So a formal logical fallacy is uh, something that negates the conclusion. Right? It's just wrong. Now, and does that make sense? You have a question about that, Maria? Is it? I, I don't, but uh, I would like to provide um, you to provide an example of that when apl uh, applied to the Enneagram. Because right. with these things, I think for people it's easy to see how this can be wrong. But, sure. um, but there are some uh, ways in which we make these mistakes that are not so obvious in terms of being wrong. Okay, so here's an example, right, of one with a flawed premise, okay? Someone might say that, uh, well, all um, type 8s are men, okay? Um, Maria Jose is a woman, therefore, Maria Jose is not a type 8, okay? Now, the conclusion is correct, okay, but it's a flawed, it's a logical fallacy, because we know that the first premise is not correct. Mm -hmm. It might be better to say that we know that, uh, it might be better to say for better uh, uh, clarity, um, premise one, all type eights are women. Okay? Um, premise two, Mario is a man, right? Therefore, conclusion, Mario is not a type eight. Well, the problem with that structure is that the first premise, all eights are women, is incorrect, okay? Now, of course, nobody's gonna say, well, all eights are women, right? But they might say, for example, well, eights don't read. Mario reads, therefore he's not an eight. And I have actually had people say that to me, okay? Um, so, because we know, well, I'm sorry, what was that? The chin. The chin, yeah, so there's another one, all right? Yeah, this is great. So there, I read some Enneagram teachers saying that um, all eights have uh, big chins and strong jaws. And if somebody says they're not an eight, but they don't have a big chin, then they're either a six or a nine. Okay. Well, 
first of all, that first premise is simply not true. Okay. Um, because not all eights do have big chins. I don't have a big chin, which is why I wear a beard. Okay. So, um, we have to be really careful about any assumptions we're making in our premises uh, when it comes to working with the Enneagram. Okay. Yeah, and there's so many that we take as all eights or fours or no fours uh, can no fours can be CEOs or and yes. and he's a CEO so he's not a four and we do this all the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's a good example, right? Well, CEOs are too emotional to be fours. Okay. Steve Jobs was a CEO. Therefore, Steve Jobs cannot be a four. Right? Well, the first premise is flawed. Okay? So, um, so we, we, again, this is important in, in lots of areas in life, um, but uh, certainly in working with the Enneagram. Okay. Now, an informal logical fallacy is a bit different, okay? The difference between a formal logical fallacy and an informal logical fallacy is that in an informal logical fallacy, the conclusion is not necessarily flawed, but the evidence given in support of that has to be, um, if it's, if it's, if it's part of a informal logical fallacy, it has to be rejected and the person making the argument needs to come up with a better argument. Okay. For example, an informal logical fallacy, an example of an informal logical fallacy is what's called an appeal to authority. Okay. Where we say, well, this authority said this, therefore it must be true. Okay. Now, whether that authority said it or not, does not make it true. The facts make it true. Okay. And if your only argument is so-and-so said it, then the conclusion can be dismissed. Okay. But again, it doesn't necessarily negate it. It might be true, even if your only evidence for it being true is that you got it from some authority. Okay, so in an informal logical fallacy, the validity of the conclusion is independent of the argument, but the specific evidence that includes the informal logical fallacy is invalid. Okay, another example of this, what's called a two quoque argument, okay, which means in uh, Latin, you too, okay, you did it too. Um, sometimes you'll hear this called whataboutism, where somebody, you know, one of your kids gets in trouble and they say, well, what about her? He, she did it too, right? Or what about him? He did it too. Well, that is irrelevant. Okay. Just because somebody else did something doesn't mean that it's okay for you to do it. Right? So that as a defense is not a valid defense against some activity. Right. This actually comes from a legal term because there are a lot of people who will try to go to court and say, yes, I, yes, officer, I was speeding. Okay. Yes, your honor. I was speeding. Uh, I was going, you know, 30 kilometers over the uh, um, uh, speed limit, but everybody does it. Right. You know, all my neighbors do it. Well, it doesn't matter if all your neighbors do it. It's still against the law. 
Okay. So an informal logical fallacy um, is all about the value of the evidence being stated at the time and whether that evidence should be accepted or not. Okay. There's lots of logical, uh, informal logical fallacies that we're going to cover in other videos, uh, but I think that kind of covers it. Anything else you would add to that, Maria? Oh, yeah. That um, the moment you start identifying and spotting this, you realize that they're all over the place. And, <laughs> yes. and uh, you just can't help it, but see them. And, um, and I think that this is useful for us. And this is very useful for kids. I mean, if you're raising your children, um, this is one of the best things you can teach them because yes. there's so much information everywhere. And that's really, I mean, easy, accessible, but trying to um, differentiate between what's true, what's not true, how to reason, um, it's what it's important. And these understanding these logical fallacies helps you with that. Yeah. I'll just to say as a final point here uh, from me that um, I don't talk to my children, to my sons about the Enneagram, but I do talk to them about logical fallacies, right? I mean, I just think it's really, really important that they are equipped to recognize them um, because um, every scam artist out there will use logical fallacies to try and get you to do um, uh, what they what they want you to do. So it's good, simple, intellectual self-defense to understand logical fallacies. Yeah. A lot of times when we are working with a client or doing work on ourselves, we think back to memories of earlier times right? What we were like as children, what happened to us when we were children that might have had some impact on us and who we are, what happened in an argument with somebody else, okay? Uh, what happened at some event we were at? And we draw conclusions based on those memories. Okay? Uh, very often when we're working with clients and they get a piece of feedback they don't like, they say, oh, well, I know where this feedback is coming from. I had a conversation with so-and-so and she said this, and I said that, and he said this, and they recount this event. Um, the problem is that our memories are highly unreliable. And so much of the time we spend analyzing our memories and drawing conclusions based on those memories is time that is not well spent. Okay? Our memories can be useful in telling us how we feel about something today. But we have to be extremely careful about relying on the accuracy of those memories when we draw any conclusions about events. Okay. Um, this is um, something that almost nobody wants to hear. Everybody believes their memories. Everybody uh, sees their memories as part of their identity, right? If I am not my memories, who am I? Uh, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, movies that play on memory, science fiction movies, for example, where, you know, like the matrix where people are implanted with false memories. And so, you know, am I the person that I think I am based on my false memories or am I the person that I really am? 
Okay, these are uh, you know deep philosophical questions. Okay, so people are really really uncomfortable with this topic, but once you really understand it, it can actually be kind of liberating. Yeah, I still remember when I first started understanding this, and I was so sure about that I had such a good memory and was able to make any bed uh, when I studied some, something that had happened. And, and I agree with you that it's liberating and in many, many different ways because it's not only not having arguments about what happened in a particular time, but also letting go of the weight of what we think previous events um, how we think they impacted on us. So when we think that we are doing this because that happened and, well, you know what, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm doing it and I have to deal with it. So I think that um, it is important to understand how memory works and how unreliable it is. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, the seven sins of memory that have been identified by a guy named Daniel Schachter. Um, um, I, I just want to give one quick example of um, the issue about memory. So um, I have a sister who is two years and 10 months younger than me. And whenever earlier in life people would ask me, what is your earliest memory? I would say it was the day my sister came home from the hospital as a baby. Right. Now, it's reasonable to think that that would leave a lasting memory on a child about that age. Okay? It's a big event. Uh, now somebody else is fighting for the attention of your parents. And, you know, so it can be kind of traumatic. Right? And when I would tell people about the, re the memory, I would remember that there was a lot of snow on the ground. Okay? And I could see my mother carefully carrying my sister through the paths, you know, shoveled out in the snow. Until finally, it occurred to me that my sister was born in June, which is the summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, which means there could have not been snow, right, at that time, right? So maybe there, I do in some way remember my sister coming home. Maybe I conflated it with some memory of snow, or maybe it's just a memory that got implanted. I might have seen it on television somewhere and it became my memory or who knows what happened, but it cannot be true because we have never had significant snow in June in Pennsylvania. Okay, So um, this can be disconcerting, but it's just one example of how many ways in which our memories can um, fool us. It's a great experiment with this uh, related to the space shuttle. Okay. There was a psychology professor, and one of these days I'm going to have to dig up his name. Uh, I know this is a true, well, I'm pretty sure this is a true story, <laughs> even though I don't have the facts right at my, at my fingertips. But there was a famous study or experiment where a college psychology professor asked his students to write down what they were doing when they heard that the space shuttle, the Challenger, exploded. Uh, it was in the 1980s. I think it was about 1986 or 87. But I know Ronald Reagan was president. So 
the students all wrote down where they were on a piece of paper, put in an envelope with their name on the envelope. And a couple of years later, the psychology professor contacted the students again and said, would you please write down what you were doing um, when the space shuttle exploded or when you found out that the space shuttle exploded. So the students all wrote back and a number of them, quite a few, had discrepancies between what they wrote the day after the space shuttle exploded and what they wrote a couple of years later. And the psychology professor asked those who had a discrepancy to come in and he showed them the two uh, accounts, both in their handwriting, right? And showed them the differences in the account. And what most of the students would do is say about the older one, the one that was contemporaneous with the event, well, that's my handwriting and that's my signature, but that's not what happened because I remember it very clearly. Right? Well, obviously their memories are flawed, okay? Unless they were just lying on the original thing, but you know, probably not. So um, there is a lot of data that supports um, what we're gonna say about memory um, when you go looking for it. Daniel Schachter's book, The Seven Sins of Memory is a really good place to start with this, mm -hmm. as is Elizabeth Loftus's work on uh, memory as well. So let's go to those seven sins of memory, Mario Zen. So the first one is transience, okay? Meaning that they just kind of fade away over time. Um, we tend to think that our memory works like a video camera, mm -hmm. that it's recording everything second by second, and it's storing it away. Well, the reality is, is that our memory works like a, a still camera. It's taking photographs, not videos, photographs. And when we recall something from our past, our brain does the equivalent of going to a filing cabinet, pulling out the snapshot stored away of that event, and then a part of your brain creates a narrative about it. Okay, It creates a video based on that image. When it's done remembering that thing, it puts it back in the um, um, in the filing cabinet. And when we go to remember the event again, we are not remembering the original event. We are remembering our last memory of that event. And over time, there are copying errors, right? We misremember things. Other things slip in, like snow in June in Pennsylvania. Okay? And our memories can become very divorced from what actually happened. In addition to this, they simply fade away. Okay, the brain simply doesn't have the space to store every memory. So it is constantly cutting memories out, right? Just shaving them away. People struggle with this. And what I always ask them to do, if they don't believe that our memories fade away, is to tell me what they had for lunch when they were six years, three months, and two days old, okay? And, you know, you don't have memories of so many things, so many moments in your life um, because they just, they fade over time. Okay? Although it's a, a movie for kids, 
but um, the movie Inside Out explains really well how memory works mm. and uh, how why you get rid of certain memories and how they work and some key memories and um, so uh, I yeah I recommend people to watch that if you yeah. if they haven't. Um, another sin of memory is absent-mindedness. So sometimes we are not paying attention and forget to do things and memory doesn't work in those moments and it works like that all the time and some people tend to forget and or be absent-minded in certain kind of things and others in others so um, I've seen a lot of men um, but it could be men or women but uh, not paying attention to the logistics at home and they just forget about certain things and or women not paying attention to other things that are not interesting for them or it could be um, anybody but it's just we don't pay attention to any, everything and we tend to forget those things that um, we're not paying attention to even if it's not uh, deliberate we're just uh, not there which is good. If we paid attention to everything, it would be exhausting. Yes. Yeah, so this absent-mindedness comes from, uh, number one, not paying attention. Number two, not really caring, right? Um, and, uh, you know, a great example of that, you know, we forget where we put our glasses. We forget where we left a book. We forget where we left a keys, a set of keys. Um, whenever I have to go to the supermarket, you know, my wife asks me to go pick up some things. She can give me she can tell me to pick up two things, but by the time I get there, I cannot remember what those two things are, right? Uh, I need to write it down or better yet, have her send me a text message. Okay. So, um, you know, but I can remember all sorts of obscure facts that are things that I'm interested in. I can tell you that Ty Cobb's lifetime batting average was 367, right? And he played, I think he quit playing baseball in the 1920s, right? So um, there are things that just kind of get stuck in the brain and other things that just never get a foothold. And we are absent-minded about those things. Okay. Uh, the third area is what's called blocking. And this is when the brain, for whatever reason, just sometimes throws up a mental block about something. It may be something that we know very well. It's something that's a you know very good memory. Um, it's one of that's kind of the tip of the tip of your tongue syndrome, right? Where you see somebody and you you know you know their name, but you just for the life of you cannot remember it or the name of a song or the name of a movie or something like that. And it will drive you crazy until all of a sudden you're in the middle of another conversation. And all of a sudden that name bursts into your brain. Right? Uh, this is called uh, blocking memory blocking. Uh, I'm not sure why it happens, but we all have that experience of these temporary memory losses. Another sin of memory is suggestibility. And, and that's when we incorporate um, misinformation into memory due to leading questions, deception, or other causes. This happens a lot in trials, for example. And uh, if you're facing, if you're looking at five people who are the suspects, uh, you might say, oh, it's the one on the left. And maybe it's not. But because they're presented to you, you think that uh, you 
think you remember that it's one of them or what what uh, ice cream did you have last time and and maybe you didn't have ice cream but it is in terms of it is given how you are presented with certain uh, triggers you might uh, remember things that didn't happen yeah it's great um maria jose i remember you giving a, a really good example of this one time with i think it was one of your daughters if i remember the story correctly where um you were trying to get her to eat a particular food and you told her that when she was young she really enjoyed the food and so what you were doing were basically suggesting things into her memory to shape them to try and influence her current actions. Am yeah, I, I took that from Elizabeth there? Loftus' video, uh -huh. the TED Talk. She mentioned that. Um, mm. And I tried it, and sometimes it worked. It's yeah. implanting memories in people yeah. Uh, yeah. for their own good. It was good, I mean, food that was healthy. Uh, you can do that uh, with not such good intentions, and it will might work anyway. Yeah. Uh, bias is another factory that shapes our memory. Um, so what happens is we often um, remember our past actions based on our current filters, right? How we see ourselves now, for example, right? Uh, we might uh, have memories of ourselves where we were much more assertive in our younger days than we actually were because we have become more assertive over time, for example. Or we might remember that we were more sensitive and thoughtful um, earlier in life than we really were because we've become more sensitive and thoughtful. Um, there can be cultural changes in things where we think back about how life was early on uh, but it's biased due to how things are. Something I see in the United States all the time, uh, because we're much more conscious of safety and protecting children, we think about how, you know, we, we say, oh, that's really silly. And, you know, back when I was a kid, you know, we didn't wear seat belts and we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And I turned out just fine. Well, yes, but we forget things like, you know, I have a cousin who wasn't wearing a seatbelt when he was three years old or so. He wasn't strapped into a car. Uh, they went around a corner quickly. The door popped open from the car and he went tumbling out of the car. Right. You know, so we tend not to uh, remember how many kids were killed and injured, uh, you know, when I was young, uh, because we have this bias of about how much safer things are okay so uh, biases can shape our memories all the time when we let our opinions about today or opinions about uh, things in general influence them another problem with memories are persistence so there's some memories or recollections that are that we want to forget about but uh, it's just hard to and they keep coming back uh, they might be intrusive, like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is not about forgetting, but it's about just having these things uh, coming back to us without being able to stop thinking about them. Yeah. And, and so this is not so much about a memory that disappears, but it's about a memory that repeats itself over and over again, often to our detriment. Right. And, uh, you know, there were interesting studies after 
9-11 occurred here in the United States when um, a lot of the schools in New York were mandating um, 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 trauma classes with children. And they were having the children discuss all of the events that happened on that day and how they felt about it and discussing it and, you know, over and over again. And over time, they realized that the people who went through those trainings actually ended up having more long-term stress than people who didn't, who people who, you know, children who just kind of forgot about it over time, right, uh, and didn't feel the post-traumatic stress. So, um, again, these, you know, memories can um, haunt us um, either simply because it was so traumatic that we carry it around with us or it got ingrained into our brains so much through repetition that it just keeps coming back okay. and then finally we have uh, oh, go ahead no, no i was going to add that when there is a context that it is more emotionally charged uh, you tend to remember things more and probably in those cases because they lived all that fear again or stress it could just got stronger the memory yeah yeah but a, but also that doesn't mean even if it is strongly entrenched that our memory of it is accurate yeah. right um, you know it could be a false memory implanted in in um uh, deeply implanted through yeah. uh, deep emotion okay uh, so finally, there's misattribution, right? Misattribution is when um, it's just, it's an incorrect source. We, we get something wrong uh, or we get it from somebody else. We hear about something that happened to somebody and over time we believed it happened to us, okay? Or we believe we had some bright insight where uh, that actually came from somebody else, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, that we all tend to do, right? We, you know, somebody says something and we say, oh, that's a great idea. And before we realize it in our brain, it was our idea in the first place, okay? We get really frustrated when other people do this, right? Uh, present company included, <laughs> um, but uh, um, but it's just something that tends to happen, right? There's the brain again has a way of trying to create these simple stories. If it, if it's a, if it's a good idea, it should be my, it must be mine. <laughs> it must have been mine, right? You know exactly, right? <laughs> it was a bad idea. It must have been somebody else. Um, you know, there's a saying that we're all the hero of our own story, right? Which is really, uh, I think, something we need to be careful about because that need to be the hero of our own story has an impact on the way our memory functions and stores things. Mm -hmm. So the important point of this is not to make anybody feel guilty about misremembering things, right? It's just to make them aware that we tend to misremember things. And so much like my wife sending me off to the supermarket with a list, it's really important that we take notes of anything that's important um, so that we remember it accurately over time. Right? So when it comes to memory, what I always tell my clients is don't get caught up in any kind of, well, you said, no, I said, no, you said sort of arguments about something. Always say, okay, here's how I remember it, but I could be wrong. So given the circumstances, what are we going to do now to address this situation? 
and then to take notes, right? Write in your notebook, send an email. So you have some record of it, okay? But if all you're relying on is your memory of an event, then you're asking for trouble. Yeah, and we've heard it so, so often. Uh, people saying, yeah, I'm a four because my dad, my mom, my this, my dad, or I used to be a four and now I, I am a six or a two. <laughs> you know? I've changed over time. I used to be this person and now I'm this person. Yeah, well, what can I say? It's how do you know? And you probably, that's probably your recollection, but because of all these things that we have covered today, it's probably, I mean, you cannot trust those memories. Yeah, I'll just give a real, a very personal example on that. I mean, when I think back to my childhood, I remember all the times in which I did not assert myself, right? In which, you know, I felt like oh, I should have said this or I should have done that. And, you know, when I first started learning about the Enneagram, um, you know, I wondered, well, did I change over time? But actually, the person who taught me, the, you know, introduced me to the Enneagram knew me since I was three years old. Right. And I remember him saying to me, no, nah, man, from from the time you were three, at least you were clearly this assertive kid. Right. Who, you know, stood up for himself and for his siblings and all that sort of thing. So my memory um, being very internal was not the same as others. And if you ask my mother, you ask my siblings, they will all say, crazy you've always been an eight right so we're the equivalent thereof mm -hmm. so so yeah can't can't really worry too much about how we perceive our past stay focused on the future and what you're going to do about it leadership thinking comprises three elements rigor which we've talked about rigor is uh, the amount of discipline and uh, critical thinking to apply to a particular situation. And that is represented by the vertical arrow underneath point one in our triangle. And rigor varies based on the circumstances, right? So a big important decision requires more rigor. A small, less important re de decision requires less rigor. And right? it's up to the leader and each one of us to understand the appropriate amount of rigor to apply and what the appropriate tools are regarding rigor. Uh, but go ahead, Maria. Yeah, so sometimes rigor, at least in Spanish, it feels like um, a big effort or like um, something almost that you need strength. And I think it, it applies to what we're talking about here, but mm -hmm. it's also about kind of, I think, um, seeing clearly and it's it almost feels like relaxed. It's you have to step back instead of trying too hard. It's almost stepping back and trying to see what's really there. So, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So it does tie to objectivity, you know, the core quality that we've talked about seeing the world as it mm -hmm. is. And one of the ways we develop objectivity is through practicing acceptance. Okay. Mm -hmm. And acceptance is kind of a relaxing into something. Mm. Um, and, you know, so rigor, you know, technically means stiffness, right? Um, but, you know, it's like good posture, right? Um, you know, at 
first, when you develop good posture or work on your posture, there's effort involved. But what you realize eventually is that good posture actually is easier on your body, right? It's better for your body. And when you have good posture, we, you have fewer aches and pains. Okay. So I think the same thing applies here to rigor that yeah. while it feels like work at first, ultimately you just kind of gravitate into it. It feels easy mm. or easier. And it certainly has a benefit that outweighs any initial discomfort. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, you know, talk about how uh, rigor needs to rest on a foundation of curiosity and creativity. Uh, be supported by these two qualities that are in some ways opposites, uh, in some ways complementary, um, but both need to exist in us in a dynamic tension if we're going to be truly a, a, an effective thinker. Okay. So uh, we correlate curiosity to point seven. Uh, this is not to indicate that only sevens are curious um or even that all sevens are curious because i've met sevens who are not particularly curious okay just like we don't want to imply that all fewer all fours are creative uh they're not necessarily um and not only fours are creative but uh but the enneagram you know these two qualities do sort of represent those points on the enneagram uh, which takes us back to this idea that the Enneagram is both an, an interpersonal model, I mean, a model of nine different kinds of people, and an intrapersonal model, meaning that it's a, a model of multiple aspects of each one of us. Okay? So um, learning how to cultivate curiosity and creativity in ourselves and holding those two things at the same time um, is really important to being a clear thinker. Yeah, keeping a balance and knowing when to use what is important, just like with uh, power, uh, connection, and detachment. Uh, right. Yeah. It's almost like there's no power if you don't look at connection and detachment. Here, I think that right. rigor, it's, there's no point in being rigorous in the, our thinking if these other two qualities are not there. Right, right. Okay, so let's take a look at curiosity. And uh, curiosity fundamentally is a desire to know what's out there. It's a hunger to know what's out there. And, and the, the, the root of the word um, it has to do with, uh, with a, a caring, right? It's not just kind of an aimless sort of wandering, but it's having a true interest in something, which is why I chose the word hunger here mm -hmm. instead of just you know, curiosity, right? So there is really something active about this, um, this force that has to happen. It's not just, you know, oh, look at that, but it's really kind of going out in search of novelty in a way, right? things that we don't understand. Yeah. And when I think about curiosity, I can't help but thinking about some sevens I know, um, mm -hmm. and how that hunger has surprised me several times it's like how can they think about these things it would never hmm. occur to me that that right. could be a possibility you know and right. that they are searching for answers in this domain and i'm like why would they think that and it's um it's just interesting to me how uh that hunger um to pay attention to certain things that some i've never seen 
Yeah. I think we can also relate this to uh, the idea of play, right? Mm. Uh, uh, Jack Panksepp, uh, the um, scientist who studied uh, uh, systems, uh, feeling systems, identified the play system as one of the fundamentals to humans. I think he identified seven or nine. Uh, but it's this idea of wanting to play. You know, we, we, we have a saying in English, curiosity killed the cat, right? Mm. Meaning that, you know, the curiosity of the cat can get it into trouble. Mm. But every kitten, at least, just like every child, uh, does have kind of a curiosity, which uh, tends to get dulled over the course of our lives. Mm. Okay, So uh, first thing that's important to understand when we're thinking about you know, how to be more curious is just to remember how ignorant we are, right? Um, you know, the, you know, every so often you see on social media, these pie charts of, right, of like, you know, here are the things that I know and here are the things I think I know. And then here are all the things that I don't know, right? Um, Plato, I think it was Plato or Socrates, I can't remember now said, you know, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. Um, because, you know, tying us again to the Dunning-Kruger effect um, when, you know, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. And the way to stay mm. curious is to continue to remind ourselves that there is a whole universe of things we do not understand um, that we could be exploring and could be curious about. And I see this sometimes where when you say that you don't know, it's seen as something negative mm -hmm. and i'm saying you say like in general but i've seen it in you like when uh we've discussed this several times it's saying mm -hmm. that you don't know socially it's kind of um negatively seen and yeah. i think that it's important to overcome that and yeah. be willing to say i don't know Without right. saying, like, I'm a dummy, I don't know, but, uh, like, right. uh, acknowledging that it's, for yourself, might be easier socially, like, you know, with a group, it's hard, but we, I think we need to do it. Absolutely. And, you know, you can always add to that, I don't know, but let me Google it, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it's so easy today to just say, hey, Siri, you know, and, and ask, you know, whatever question we have. Now, but there are some things that even Siri doesn't know, okay, and even Google doesn't know, and those things we have to have some humility about. So uh, you know, you're you're absolutely right that uh, while it can be viewed as a uh, you know a sign of limitation or weakness or something, it's also it's also where the beginning of knowledge starts with yeah. this understanding that I don't know something. Right? The philosopher Isaiah Berlin identified two basic kinds of people. Uh, one was the fox and the other was the hedgehog. Uh, and his idea was that uh, the fox knows many things, uh, but doesn't know uh, anything that well, right? So when it's escaping a predator, there's many paths that it could take, okay? Uh, so foxes are kind of generalists. And uh, whereas the hedgehog is an, uh, an animal that knows only one thing, when escaping from a predator, and that's to drop in place and roll up into a ball, right? And that's what they do. They just kind of curl up and wait for the predator to lose interest in them, uh, and then they go about their way. 
And so there are advantages to both of these strategies, right? There's advantages to being a generalist and there's advantages to being a specialist. And uh, so the, um, um, the, the idea of being a fox hog is to ha be a generalist in many areas and a specialist in a few. Okay. And so to kind of go broad and on some things go deep. Okay, and to continue to find that, you know, maybe you're just to use knowledge of music in this, as an example, right? Maybe you have a broad knowledge of music at a superficial level, but you know a lot about opera, right? Or you know a lot about, you know, folk music or whatever kind of music you like. Okay, so um, cultivating this idea of having a broad general base of knowledge and uh, some degree of expertise in a few is a very helpful quality. I was trying to picture the combination. What a hedgehog looks yeah. like? <laughs> no, 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 both <laughs> together. Yeah. No, and I was, honestly, I was trying to um, see how that works, like at the workplace, for example, for uh, the number one, like the CEO. And when, so, so when you come from a more kind of, from being a, a more, functional more, role. Yes, and then you go up to a more yeah, uh, like general a general role. yes, and it's it is comfortable to continue yeah. uh, as a specialist. Uh, right, you feel more comfortable in that domain, and then uh, become more of a generalist might be a challenge. Yeah. Uh, and for some people, it's the opposite. And to keep that balance, it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, from a business perspective, it's going to, you know, it's learning to, you know, transition from a, uh, from a functional role to an enterprise level mindset, right? Um, and, you know, you see this all the time with a CEO who, you know, say used to be the CFO, right? Mm -hmm. And becomes the CEO and will always have this, you know, kind of impulse to step back into the CFO role. Right. You never want to be the CFO who is replacing somebody who just became CEO. Um, you know, same thing applies to a sales leader who becomes CEO. Uh, but the CEO or the general manager at that level, as you say, needs to learn to think more broadly and not get pulled down into that. But it helps to have that expertise. Yeah. Right. I mean, it helps to be able to say, hey, have you thought about this? Yeah. Right? Because I was in that role. So. So we say here, keep adding to the endless mosaic, right? And that, of course, requires some explanation. Uh, P, I, I think it's always useful for people to think of life as a mosaic, right? Of each piece of knowledge you um, gather, you should fit like a little tile into the mosaic somewhere, like a puzzle that you're putting together. And to start to continue to see the world in um, as bits of information, almost or you know bits of color, almost like an impressionist uh, painting, um, where you are, you know, kind of seeing how things fit, right? Putting things into context all of the time. I always tell my sons, you know, I force them to read, you know, books, you know, biographies. I you know, force them to learn about things. And like most kids, they, you know, they don't want to hear it. They're not that interested. Um, but it adds color to the world, right? When you, uh, you know, I remember when, Marie Jose, when you and I were in Belgium, right? And we were with our friends there and drove past a sign for Waterloo, 
right? And, you know, my mind immediately went to Waterloo, Napoleon. Oh, interesting. And for whatever reason, I did not know that Waterloo was in Belgium, right? Uh, I'd never really thought about where it was, but I, I didn't know that. And, you know, again, so it was taking it and then putting things into context, right? Of seeing, ah, okay, this is where this piece fits. And, right. And that makes for a much more interesting world when you're constantly doing that, taking pieces of information you have and trying to put them into the broader context of the mosaic of life. Yeah. And sometimes they will not have a place until yeah. you find a place for it. And it's exactly right. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, go say more about that. Yeah, that sometimes it's just for the almost the fun, going back to the play thing of yeah. capturing certain things that you put in that mosaic, like somewhere outside of what you're currently working on. And all of a sudden, it will have a place or mm -hmm. it will give context to something else that you put in there. So it, it doesn't have to kind of all fit in from the very beginning, but yeah. uh, you keep adding to it. Yeah. Okay. Ask why relentlessly, right? Anybody who's a parent uh, knows that children love to ask why, right? And they can even drive you crazy sometimes. Well, why? You know, why is the sky blue? Well, why is that? Well, why is that? Well, why is that? And that is the way that they learn. I mean, this is, you know, they are, again, filling out the mosaic. They're, you know, starting to make sense of their world. But at some point, they stop asking why. And in fact, they stop caring about why, right? <laughs> we all, you know, uh, you know, reach this point where, you know, well, who cares why the sky is blue? It just is. Okay. Um, we need to hold on to that curiosity, that effort to ask why. So, you know, we, we need to just simply remind ourselves, you know, I should ask why five times today, right? Uh, you know, in whatever circumstance, just, you know, set a goal for asking why. Now, I am driving my kids crazy asking why to them, yeah. <laughs> why they do and what they do or why other people do what they do and why they care about right. that. And, right. Yeah. Yes. But it's they will turn. thank you for it someday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. It's your turn. It's, it's more out of revenge than. Uh, no, you know, it isn't. I, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I mean, just a real quick thing. One of my sons was uh, reading Romeo and Juliet for school you know, recently. And so we started talking about it and we, you know, did a comparison between Ro Romeo and Juliet and the musical West Side Story, right? And then, you know, talked about, you know, how it is, that theme has turned up in so many different art pieces and, you know, and that sort of pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, of that question of why and how are they connected. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is tied into the, the point about the mosaic is that context, context adds color to the world, right? Uh, um, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you uh, see a movie, for example, right, there are certain movies that you see where you hear a line and you say, ah, that's where that comes from. Right. That's why people say, you know, our problems don't amount to a hill of beans in this world. You know, I mean, if somebody says that to you, it just sounds like kind of a stupid thing to say until you realize it's a reference to Casablanca. Right? Or frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. You know, it doesn't mean anything. But when you when you have seen Gone with the Wind, that 
phrase that somebody makes brings a whole new set of associations to it, right? A whole new feeling, a whole new tone when you understand the context of something, okay? It fills your world with emotional and intellectual richness, okay? And the more general knowledge you have, you know, if you have not read Shakespeare, if you have not read the Bible, uh, most of Western civilization is lost on you, right? And, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, to be or not to be, if you don't know the context of that phrase, it's just something that somebody says. But when you've read Hamlet, you know, and you understand, ah, okay, here's the depth behind that. It's like going from living in a black and white world to a color, a world that's in color. Yeah, that's why traveling is so um, yeah. exciting. Yes. And reading. Yeah, say more. And watching movies. But I think traveling adds a lot of that color to the world uh, because it shows right. you different cultures, things that you get gave for granted. Uh, then it's just different in another place than what you have at home. And it just yeah. adds so much color. Yeah. yeah. And finally, no, you know, we can't get we can't get through without this one. The reality is, is that knowledge is power. Right. And if you are in a leadership role, we've already talked about how important power is for leaders. And, um, you know, the, the truth is there are few things that um, enhance power, our ability to be effective in the world than curiosity because curiosity leads to knowledge and knowledge has a currency to it so um, the way we continue to enhance our power is to continue to stay curious so there's a simple exercise i often give to my clients to help them ensure that they are staying curious right and i have them do a schedule of questions right, or a question calendar, and uh, at these different uh, time periods, ask these different questions, okay, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a logic to these, right, there's why one is only quarterly and the other is daily, uh, but the daily question is, what did I learn today? Okay. Uh, every parent, when their child comes home from school, will ask them, so how was school today? And what does the kid say? That was fine, right? And, um, you know, or eh, it was boring, you know, whatever it was. And the conversation really can't go anywhere from there. So what I, like many parents, started doing was asking my children, okay, what did you learn in school today? Right? Because now they have to give you something, right? They have to make it say, well, I learned this, right? And if they say to me, well, I didn't learn anything, then I say, well, you know the drill, go discover something and tell me something, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not sending you to school to waste your time, right? So they've got to go pick up a fact that they have. Now, I don't ask them this every day, but I ask them frequently enough that they know they need to pay attention to this, right? So asking ourselves, what did I learn today? is just a good way to make sure that we are staying curious because if the answer is nothing, that means we probably weren't very curious. Um, weekly? like to ask um, the question of what was I wrong about this week, right? What mistakes did I make? What errors did I make? Whether it was a, a um, an assumption that I had about something that was wrong or a mistake I made. Again, it's a good way to stay curious. What was the most interesting conversation I had this week? 
Now, this one's a little harder to answer, you know, today, given COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, we should think about, am I talking to interesting people or am I talking to the same people day in, day out? Right. If I haven't had an interesting conversation, again, it's a sign that I need to do something. Okay. I, I would like to go back to uh, the question about what yeah. was I wrong about this week? Yes. I immediately went back to, uh, it took me to something negative, but you i think there's an opportunity to see this as something exciting something exciting mm -hmm. that i didn't know or i was wrong about and um now i know the correct answer to it or the right facts so um i think it's important to see these things as uh, opportunities and not as a judgment absolutely Absolutely. And that's certainly the spirit in which it's meant. Right. I mean, the question really is, you know, the um, you know, what was I wrong about is another way of stating what did I learn this yeah. week? Right. Because every time we acknowledge that we were wrong about something, uh, we're pointing out I learned something new this mm -hmm. week Okay, because I used to think this and now I realize that, um, you know, for me. Um, you know, the, 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 the person who I respect intellectually is the one who's willing to say, hey, I was wrong about that. And now I know better. Right now I know more. Yeah, but a lot of people will experience cognitive dissonance here. So uh, explaining what we mean and the benefits and the positive angle uh, that this can be seen through or like, yeah. I think it's important. I completely agree. Completely agree. So a monthly question is, what topic uh, do I not know enough about? Um, the reason behind this is because the implication is, if I don't know enough about this thing, I should learn more about it. Okay, so this is a prompt to explore something. Okay, if I go back to my Waterloo example, you know, when I had that recognition, it was, a, uh, you know, it was an indicator, you know, you really should learn more about Napoleon, right? Because everybody knows about Napoleon, but what do you really know about Napoleon? Okay. And so, uh, you know, I read a short book on Napoleon after that, you know. And so, uh, you know, these are the kind of things when we ask ourselves, okay, what don't I know enough about? We can, you know, read a book on it, right? Or just find some way to spend that month educating ourselves a little bit more on that particular topic. Um, finally, the quarterly question, and you know, this one is actually more of a challenge than you know I think any of the others. Uh, what did I used to believe that I don't believe anymore? Okay, uh, because this gets a little bit deeper because we're talking about you know beliefs in one way. You know, sometimes again, it could just be something we were factually wrong about, but it could be something you know more uh, you know more complex or more you know or deeper than that. Um, so this is a tough one for people to, to wrestle with, which is why I suggest we do it quarterly. Uh, but, uh, you know, what belief did I used to hold that I don't believe anymore? And of course, all these things apply to the Enneagram as well. And, um, if we think that we know everything there is to know about the Enneagram or the personality styles, we're in, a, we're in trouble, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we learn every day if we pay attention, and we're wrong many times, um, not only weekly, but at least weekly. 
um, and there are topics that I don't we don't know enough about and we should I think change our minds regarding certain topics and stop believing in things that don't make sense to us anymore yeah. would you share something that you don't that you have changed your mind about in terms of the Enneagram oh sure there's lots of things I mean if you, if you look over the course of this um, you know wings for example right is something but that was something i abandoned years ago right um the way you know uh, the the thinking about the um um the patterns of expression has evolved over time right uh, you know referring to them as zones now uh, rather than kind of a stacking sort of mindset has been a, a you know and understanding that um the way they express themselves in us is not um uh, unrelated, right? You know, how we talk about how, you know, we as navigators display the, uh, the, the transmitting bias uh, as navigators rather than as kind of, you know, making a jump in some way to now transmitting. Um, so there's all sorts of things theoretically, right? Uh, we recently, you know, last module, we changed the word um, uh, uh, enjoyment to savoring right just to refine it and get a slightly different that's not a big change in belief but it's a you know it's it's an adjustment and a variation that adds a new insight so um yeah all, all sorts of things regarding the enneagram and many of the metaphysical things right i mean i used to embrace some of the more metaphysical assumptions behind the enneagram uh, you know but that's a whole nother can of worms <laughs> So the other part of our um, our polarity or dynamic tension when it comes to leadership thinking is creativity, which we associate with point four on the Enneagram and the lower right on our um, leadership thinking uh, heuristic. Uh, creativity needs to be in a dynamic tension with uh, curiosity. Um, Creativity is the art of bringing in something into being. It is to create, right? Um, but it has an interesting definition. Uh, creativity is a phenomenon whereby something somehow new and somehow valuable is formed. The created item may be uh, uh, intangible or a physical object. Uh, it's this idea of something valuable that's important. And this is why the... Um, the curiosity and rigor uh, sort of are a part of being truly creative, right? Because uh, if we're not curious, we don't know what's out there, what has been created and what hasn't. Uh, we don't have interesting insights into bringing something into being. And so we create things that are boring or, you know, not useful or have been done already. So they're not truly creative. Okay, so uh, this is an important thing to keep in mind and why this tension between the two qualities is important. Right? Um, if we're not, yeah. and if we're too curious, curious and um, just stay there, uh, it might be fun, but we will not bring anything into life. So right. uh, it's right. not useful anyway. Right. Yeah, a way to think about it is is that, you know, curiosity without creativity is just kind of frivolous. Uh, and creativity without curiosity is boring and uninteresting, right? So um, uh, 
so these two things really do work together. Now, when it comes to curiosity, there's not a lot of literature out there on curiosity, right? I mean, you can find a few books that talk about curiosity, uh, but not that many. Uh, one that I recommend is uh, Brian Grazer's book, A Curious Mind. He was the movie producer, and he talks about how most of his ideas for movies came from conversations he had with people. And he would seek these conversations out with uh, famous uh, and interesting people. Um when it comes to creativity, it's a whole different story. I mean, there are a million books on how to be more creative. There's all sorts of courses on how to be more creative. So we're not going to go into a huge amount of detail here because you can find sources on how to be creative, you know, done really well out there. Um, and you don't really need us to do it. But there are some kind of general rules that we tend to share with our clients and try to practice ourselves when it comes um, to creativity. Do you think that... We might be more wired to be creative than curious? Um, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, children have both of these qualities, right? There's this playfulness that's mm -hmm. about curiosity, you know. Um, I think that in, um, in all of us, um, you know, both of these things get stifled early in life, right? Our mm -hmm. curiosity starts to wane, as we talked about in, in that other thing. And our creativity starts to get stifled, right? So, you know, I mean, think of how many kids, you know, boys build forts and, you know, uh, girls play with, you know, dolls and create these, you know, tea parties. And, you know, I mean, kids are creating all the time, right? Those Not things are changing, though. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say, you know, not to fall into the stereotypes. But, you know, um, so... Um, but, uh, you know, the children do create, right? They create mm. their own worlds. Now, I do think we're in an environment now where they're not challenged to do it as much, right? Why did we create our own worlds as kids? Because it was that or nothing, right? Now kids have, you know, the internet, video games, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I think that creativity is probably being stifled earlier in people than it used to be. Mm. Um, but so, no, I, I think they're both there. I just think that uh, creativity is more marketable as a topic, right? I mean, um, you know, I mean, teaching somebody to be curious is, you know, just doesn't seem to have as much uh, value, right? And, and, and the other thing, too, you know, we're not just talking about artistic creativity here, right? We're not just talking about, um, you know, uh, you know, doing something that's, you know, uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing and so forth, right? I mean, a business product, writing a book or teaching a course, you know, these are all creative activities. Building a business is an act of creation, okay? So, you know, we have to think of this in the broadest possible terms, right? Because otherwise people say, well, I'm just not a creative person, so I'm not going to worry mm -hmm. about that. Well, you know, look, if you've ever made yourself a sandwich, you're a creative person, right? Uh, that's an act of creation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you can make the same old bologna and cheese sandwich on white bread over and over again, or you can get more interesting with it. But, you know, even the fairly mundane things are acts of creativity. Mm -hmm. okay. 
So there are certain rules that, you know, we find to be helpful, right? And, and number one, and this is a really, really big one with me, and it applies to our work with the Enneagram, particularly around assessing people's Enneagram type. It's identifying anomalies uh, res and resolving the conflicts that you find, right? So, uh, you know, I always think of myself when I'm talking to somebody and, you know, they tell me they're this Enneagram type, but something just doesn't feel right. You know, that's I want to grab that thread. I want to start pulling on it. Right. And because, you know, what it does is it, it either uh, tells me something I didn't know about people of that Enneagram type or I start to realize that, hey, wait a minute, this person's not the Enneagram type that they think they are, not the instinctual bias they think they are. So anytime something doesn't feel right is an opportunity to find a creative solution for something. Okay. And this is the idea. The, 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 the pulling on the thread of an anomaly is not just, again, an act of curiosity, right? But it's now I'm going to resolve that conflict I found in some way. Okay. Uh, this term here we call a thinkerer, right? So, um, you know, a tinkerer is you know somebody who tinkers who makes things right who you know creates things um and um the uh, a thinker is someone who thinks about things and truly creative people go back and forth between doing and stepping back to reflect okay so reflection is a big part of the creative process but then we have to go back to doing right so even within creativity there's this tension between doing and thinking about what i've done and thinking about what i'm going to do next okay so instead of you know thinking of yourself as either a thinker or a tinker uh, be both at the same time okay. can't help thinking about tinkerbell Tinkerbell, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think it was when we talked about this. I had never really even thought about yeah. where the, you know Tinkerbell. Because you have boys, but because um, they have boys. <laughs> so I have girls, and when you watch those movies, um, you can see that uh, Tinkerbell belonged to the group of um, fairies that creates things, yes. and they had to. Uh, identify things that didn't work for the group and then create solutions for them. So, yeah. yeah. Good. See, my lack of curiosity, <laughs> you know, uh, worked against me there, but uh, thank you for enlightening me. All right. Um, all right. So uh, another element of creativity is making the complex simple and the simple complex, right? Um, and you know, obviously this sounds contradictory and it sounds like one of those kind of Zen riddles that really don't make any sense. But uh, what we're talking about here is that um, an act of creativity is to really break something down and rebuild it. Okay, so um, when we talk about making something complex, simple, you know, this is always the sign that you really understand something, right? When you can take something complex and make it simple, right? Uh, in the movie Philadelphia, uh, the Denzel Washington character, uh, as the attorney would say to people, explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos talks about uh, writing, um, you know, strategies into a six-page memo, right? You know, make it, make it simple, 
so that people can understand it. And but once you make it simple, you have to start to understand um, that even within simplicity, there's often great complexity and sophistication and subtlety and nuance. And so you have to start digging into that and finding it because people have a tendency to go back and forth between oversimplifying things and over complexifying things right and very often don't get that balance right were you going to say something about this no no all right so i i can just apply this to the enneagram right so um you know as you know we have worked hard to make the enneagram simple okay um because it is a very complex system or it can be a very complex system um, you know, we think that sometimes it's way too complex, right? But then there's a real risk of oversimplifying as well. And people don't really realize how subtle and nuanced some seemingly simple ideas are. Okay. So understanding of going back and forth between complexity and simplicity is um, a real part of the creative process. Yeah, I was thinking about how some people want, I mean, tend to make things complex without simplifying them. And mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. Yes. You just... Yes. Yes, absolutely. Right. I mean, all it does Using is... big words. Yes. I hate that. Yeah. So, um, so um, yeah. So we have, you know, we always have to ask ourselves... Mm -hmm is my simplifying something adding value or subtracting value is my making something more complex adding value or subtracting value this is the question again it gets back to this idea of value being inherent in creativity right am i creating value in some way in whichever direction i'm going Define the big strategic questions and spend time trying to answer them, right? So this is, you know, one of the simple facts is that most people simply don't take the time to think, right? Uh, very often when I work with my clients, I tell them I want them to write down their top three to five strategic questions that they're wrestling with, right? Put it on a whiteboard in front of them, put it on a piece of paper that they keep on the desk, pin it to their, uh, their computer desktop, um, whatever it is, and then spend a little time each week, even if it's only 15 minutes or 30 minutes, just sitting quietly and thinking about those questions, right? Um, the, you know, there's, a, there's an element of just simple discipline involved, but also structured thinking. Right. I mean, you know, um, anybody who's ever had a real creative breakthrough, it didn't just come in a vacuum. Right. I mean, uh, you know, um, Tinkerbell, the tinkerer, is not going to get some sudden deep insight about quantum physics. Right. Uh, you know, a quantum physicist will. Right. After doing the work, but they have to spend time thinking about it. Okay? So uh, it really is a matter of just the discipline of sitting and thinking about big questions and trying to answer them. Yeah, and it's also, I was reading years ago, but I but I use it all the time, is that you give kind of the, the mind a task. So you think about, you state what the big questions are, or what you want to work on, or what you want to create. And the moment you give that to the brain, the brain starts working on it, you know? And yes. 
and every time we see something that could be useful for that topic we kind of capture it and it keeps kind of simmering without us needing to i mean it's good to sit down and think about it but also the the act of asking those questions to ourselves um, gives the task to the brain and all of a sudden we have this breakthrough or it's like yes. a download but it's not a yes. download that happened because of just no reason it's because we gave that task to the brain so um yes. i like to think in those terms to like yes. okay this is what i have to do and leave it simmering until it's mature and then i can sit down and just work on it but it it has had some uh, uh, work um, for some time yes you're, you're absolutely right and you know the the big insights almost never come during those periods of sitting there and thinking about the question they happen in the shower later right or while you're cooking dinner or something like that right uh, because to your point the you know subconscious or non-conscious part of the brain is wrestling with uh, the questions you were asking even though your conscious part of your brain has moved on to something else mm. right? so yeah really important point Uh, always ask ourselves what could be better, right? I mean, you know, most of the great inventions have come along, you know, not just out of the blue and unrelated to anything else, but they've been improvements on a, you know, something that already existed, but wasn't quite there yet, right? I mean, uh, you know, we, we always talk about in the, in the States about building a better mousetrap, right? You know, you build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Why? Because people want to get better at trapping mouses, right? Or mice, mouses. They want to get better at trapping mice. Um, so, you know, the, the solution always is, is that this mouse trap might be good, but then you know, I'm still not getting all the mice that I want to get. Um, this not applies sure to that I love the, that I'm crazy about the pictures. Uh, the analogies, <laughs> yeah, yeah fair, fair enough, right? So we want to build a humane and, and loving mousetrap. No. You know, is, is what we want to do. I don't like uh, Right, so... I'm not <laughs> worried you know, about with anything. mice. I'm worried about them. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The vividness of the imagery. Right? Yes. I get it. So, uh, you know, it's it, it can be whatever it is we're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, the cell phone, you know, was, uh, you know, a long line of improvements to, you know, basic communication. Right. Starting with the letter. Right. You know, then they had the uh, uh, the, um, the 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 uh, telegram. Right. And then the phone and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So. Uh, you know, so very often, even in whatever work we're doing, right, you know, delivering a training program, deliver, you know, working with a coach, uh, I'm sorry, a client as a coach, always ask her, how can I do this better? Uh, is the source of creativity. And this is the important thing is you just get out there and create something new, right? I mean, so many people stop attempting to be creative because number one they might feel that creativity is you know uh something that people are or they're not right you know you always hear people say oh well i'm not creative right if you're not creative it's because you're not putting in the effort to create something okay because like we said the act of making a sandwich is being creative okay 
So we just have to, you know, start thinking about and putting ourselves into uh, the discipline of creating something. So it's always helpful to, to find some kind of hobby, right? To, um, to start taking on some sort of act of creation, even if it's doing puzzles or, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, to, to just train ourselves to be creative. Okay. Uh, you'll never bring anything interesting into the world. And this brings to the point that most creativity is not so much about having some innate gift. Although I do think some people are more innately talented, you know, in some areas, I don't think everybody, you know, could be, you know, the greatest musician in the world, no matter how much they practice. Some people just have that gift, but Everybody has far more creativity than they realize. We stop being creative because we're afraid to create something that, you know, is not going to seem like it's valuable or it's good or anything like that. You only get good at something by doing it, right? Practicing it. Um, Hemingway famously said that, you know, writing is easy. You just sit at your desk and bleed all over the page for six hours a day. Right. Uh, you, you know, um, you know, there's another writer said there's a simple formula, you know, put your ass in the chair. And, you know, this is how people become creative is just to sit down and do it. Okay. Right. So we summarize this, you know, into a few um steps right uh, so it's about a disciplined solution seeking and again there's so much literature out there on creativity i particularly recommend twyla tharp's uh, books on creativity and leadership she was a, a dance choreographer choreographer who's written some good books on creativity uh but find something that you know, persistently frustrate you, right? You know, against that idea of fi finding a problem, muse on possible solutions. And I use the word muse there very clearly, right? You know, in, in classical literature, this idea of these muses who bring ideas to us. Um, we only do that when we create space, right? We do that sitting and thinking about something, okay? And then we have to do that, you know, take a bath and invite the eureka moment in right this is where we thought about something right and then we stop thinking about it right so this is you know this is a reference to archimedes you know who um you know was thinking about volume uh, in, in geometry or, or mathematics i forget exactly um specifically what it was but he was thinking about volume and then one day he's stepping into the bathtub and he notices that the bathtub overflows in the exact amount of water that his body volume took up when he went in it. He jumps out of the bathtub and allegedly goes running down the street naked, yelling Eureka, which means I got it in Greek. I figured it out. Right? So um, we have to kind of cycle this thinking about something and then not thinking about something. So we invite the muse to come in and then schedule a disciplined effort to create. Okay, again, it's about putting your butt in a chair and doing it. Mm -hmm.